Jesus has been revealing to us the kingdom of heaven throughout this sermon. You know, how being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven should affect our daily life, how it should affect our religious life, how it should change so much of who we are. Uh, Next week, we're going to start really digging into how being a citizen of the kingdom of God will affect the day-to-day life. And this weekend, we will conclude how he speaks of how our how being a citizen of the kingdom should affect our religious life as we examine examine forgiveness and fasting. So in verses 14 and 15, we're talking about forgiving others their trespasses. As your heavenly father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And We need to remember, as always with everything else, the three rules of understanding the Bible are context, context, context. He is saying these verse that he he's opening this section by referring back to what he just finished. And we just spent two weeks going through the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer he gave to his disciples, where he said in verse 12. That, and forgive us our debts as we, have also, as we have forgiven our debtors. That's the context of what he's saying. He, uh, he is, in a way, circling back to verse 12 and clarifying what he meant when he said that. So what kind of, Jesus, what kind of forgiveness is Jesus talking about? And we discovered in verse 12, this is talking about a restorative Forgiveness, like a, a relationship that was already there being reconciled, was what was going on in verse 12. And it's the same thing that our text today is talking about. It's like how a mar- in a marriage relationship there's tension after a fight or after an argument, and there needs to be reconciliation. And that's what's being referred to here. We talked about how we are saved once. When we become Christians, how we, when we ask Jesus for forgiveness, make him Lord of our lives and surrender to him, um, we ask once for forgiveness of our sins, but at the same time, we ask for forgiveness daily, continually, we even said last week, to keep in close fellowship with God, because we don't want those daily sins that we make to hinder our relationship with God. So, in essence, this verse is not saying, well, if you fail to forgive somebody even just one time, oh, it's hellfire for you. That's not what this verse is saying. He's saying that even though, but he is saying that even though your salvation is not affected by how you treat others, my goodness, your walk and relationship with God is. That that relationship is hindered, much like how a marriage requires reconciliation after a fight. So we need to reconcile to God to enjoy fellowship with him, even though we love him and are, if you will, in a committed relationship with him, if you will. But as Christians, this is a commandment of Jesus to forgive. We are not given the luxury to choose not to forgive someone. It has deep consequences for our relationship with God. And furthermore, it should concern us deeply if we express a a unwillingness to forgive others. 
Because the person who absolutely refuses to ever forgive another person probably does not understand the gospel. If you can never find it in your heart to forgive another person, you probably do not understand the gospel. John Stott once said that once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. On the other hand, if we have exaggerated our exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. Do you see what he's saying there? That when you understand how deep our offenses are to God in our sins, once we truly understand that, the way others have sinned against us, it really appears to be so minor, trivial even. And if it doesn't appear trivial to us, then we've either exaggerated how much we've been offended or we've minimized our own offenses. Something is either be, if we have trouble forgiving someone, we're either magnifying our own sin against or we're minimizing our own sins in our life. Something is being magnified or minimized if forgiveness is hard. Because Jesus has forgiven us of so much, it should come naturally. There's no room for unforgiveness if we understand what Jesus has done for us. Rather, as our first reading from last week, as uh, Luke 17 told us, if your brother sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. It should be that easy to be able to forgive somebody even seven times in a day, understanding what we have been forgiven. Now, that being said, I need to warn you guys. There are wicked people in this world that will take these scriptures and twist them to say things that to offer a different kind of forgiveness that the Bible does not talk about. Let me, let me clarify that, actually. We are meant to be a forgiving people. Not victims. We're not called to be victims. If um, a friend of yours steals your wallet, for instance, yes, we are called to forgive them. But you never leave that person alone with your stuff again. <laughs> There's a consequence for our actions. In the same way, if a spouse cheats on you, as devastating as that is, Yes, we forgive them, but we also recognize they forfeited their right to ever be trusted. And that, takes, that is a long road to walk. A lot of relationships can't make it past that, and Jesus even recognizes that in the scriptures. There's a principle there. So people cannot just say to you, however they've sinned against you, oh, you need to just forgive me and pretend this didn't happen a day after these incidents and pretend these things didn't happen in the first place. No, that's not forgiveness. That's manipulation. There are wicked people who do that every day, and they're usually trying to regain power once they have lost it in a relationship. And guys, I know this is a heavy subject to talk about on Sunday morning, but I say it because I'm not an omniscient being. 
Odds are, if you discover this happening in your families, in your circle of friends, to a loved one, I'm probably not going to be standing next to you when this happens. I'm saying this to empower you guys to do the right thing and to help others do the right thing in their time of need. As heavy as a subject as it is, it is needed. And let me go back to that pseudo-definition of forgiveness, by the way. Because it's not, true biblical forgiveness is not pretending something didn't happen and that everything is just okay now. Biblical forgiveness is staring the problem right in the face, knowing full well how much they hurt you, looking to the cross of Jesus Christ and saying, in light of how much I have been forgiven, I forgive you too. Through not in spite of or ignoring, but through all of that pain is how we forgive others. Knowing that we have been forgiven far more than whatever we are forgiving somebody else for. And it's needed to do this. It is so necessary as Christians to do this. Because as your pastor, I need to warn you that unforgiveness is so damaging to you and for your relationships. Because let's face it, unforgiveness is like a bag of meat left out in the hot summer sun. It goes bad quick and it gets ugly. And it stinks for everyone involved. Just like this hot summer week that we just got done having, goodness. Because when unforgiveness spoils, if you will, It gives forth to bitterness. And bitterness destroys relationships. It destroys people. When you get bitter at someone, you just assume the worst of that person. They become the worst person you've ever met in your life. You will show them no respect. You will have no patience for them. You will be mean-spirited towards them. And it just gets worse from there. Think about... Call to mind the fruits of the Spirit that we talked about in the book of Galatians. How the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. Bitterness is like a parasite that rots all of the fruits of the Spirit. Because you can't be bitter towards someone and show them that love of God at the same time. One of them will override the other. And the irony is that It is destroying you on the inside when you're bitter. And the person next to you might not even be aware. Bitterness is like drinking a poison and hoping the other person dies. It's like bitterness and unforgiveness is like drinking a poison and hoping your enemy dies. It only affects you and it destroys you. So let me tell you guys. I could not implore you more strongly. Choose to forgive. Choose to view whatever wrong has legitimately happened against you through the cross of Jesus Christ. Forgive them in your heart. Let the consequences be what they will be. But don't become a victim of your own bitterness. Don't be like the stereotypical sisters that fight and haven't spoken to each other for 20 years over something they completely forgot about. 
You've heard those stories, so have I. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. And moving on from this, because I do want to finish this section today, we're going to address quickly the topic of fasting. What is fasting anyway? We don't talk about it a whole lot as in terms of our religious atmosphere, in terms of Western Protestantism. We don't talk about it or emphasize it a lot. It's abstaining, usually from food, for a period of time to spend it instead with God. It's an act of worship is really what fasting is. It's where you basically forgo something saying that, you know, saying to God that your presence, time with you in prayer, time with you in worship is more important than even my food. Job 23.12 says, I have treasured the words of his mouth, referring to God, more than my portion of food. One pastor whom I also deeply respect had said that uh, he has had more days where that he has read his Bible than days that he has eaten. I have a lot of respect for that. I can't say that of myself. That's a beautiful, true thought. And he's doing it not haphazardly. He's pushing those things out to make sure he has time for the most important things to him. And there's a good point to it. I mean, if you think about it, you spend so much time. Or you have so much extra time, I should say, when you don't eat. You, that's time you're not spending prepping, cooking, actually eating. Um, the, the cleanup process, washing dishes, it adds up. Especially here in the West. And that's time that you could spend extra time in prayer and in serving. That's the principle that, that Jesus is introducing here. And so, I got to say, before we go further, and I know this next point, it could be a sermon unto itself, so I'm, I'm just going to hit this real quickly. As Americans living in 2021, no, we have way too much wasted time on our hands. In 2020, the average time spent in America on social media was two hours a day. Just slightly over two hours a day. I think it was two hours and five minutes on average. So let me just be blunt for a second. If you want to find time to spend with God in worship, in prayer, in doing something significant in your life, the best thing you can do is get a hammer and smash your phone. For many people, that is the best thing you can do for yourself. Do you guys know what you could do with an extra two hours in your day? I mean, I did the math. Just as for the sake of an example, something we can all wrap our minds around. If, for, if you are an average reader and you spent that two extra hours a day reading the Bible, you could read this book through ten times in one year. For the average reader, I sat down and did the math last night to be sure I was right. How's that for time well spent? And please don't mistake my point. I'm not coming up here going on a tirade saying all social media is evil. I think it does have a point. It is a useful tool when used for the right purposes. Just like a brick can be used to build a hospital or smash one of these windows. It's what you do with it 
not necessarily what it is. But too often it is wasted, especially in our culture. But there are good aspects. There are people joining us in right now through social media who are worshiping with us this morning through Facebook and other means as we expand on what we can do here. But I can't stand here and talk about the biblical prince, a biblical principle of how to squeeze extra time in our day to worship God when these are our real distractions. I can't implore you to give up significant things in your life to spend time with God when we don't even give up the insignificant things. So please see my point for what it is. I'm going to get off my soapbox, I promise. (laughs) But if you don't hear me on this point, the rest of this text isn't going to matter too much to you. That's why I say that. So that being said, there are all kinds of wrong ways to fast. And of course, Jesus has his eyes staring right at the Pharisees as he says in verse 16, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not, may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the, once again, the Pharisees' great error is taking something meant to be private and personal. And making it public and mechanical. You might have noticed this is, a, this is a pattern that's emerging a lot. They're taking what's meant to be private and personal, something that you do by yourself and it has great meaning to you, and doing it publicly to be seen by others and in a mechanical way. Nothing in our relationship ought to be like that. Nothing in our relationship with God ought to look like that. Because fasting ought never to be about impressing God or impressing man. But these guys did it all the time. And the way they did it to impress others was obvious. Because fasting back then, especially for the Pharisees, was done twice a week. uh, On Mondays and Thursdays. So everyone knew when they were doing it. It's mistake number one right there. And... If doing it on the same days wasn't enough, they made everyone know when they were fasting. They looked gloomy. They disfigured their faces. They looked, oh, I'm miserable. I'm feeling so bad serving the Lord like this. (sighs) Moaning the whole time while they were doing it. So people would have pity on them and say, oh, Rabbi, so-and-so, look at how he is serving the Lord. He is so miserable. He must be so holy. Goodness. <laughs> what did Jesus say about the right way to fast? Their fasting was public. He says, let yours be in secret. They did theirs on the same time every week. They said, don't tell, Jesus said, don't tell anyone when you fast. They moan and they leave their faces unwashed and they look weak. But he says to you, wash your face. Take a shower, have a cup of coffee. Don't look like you're miserable in what you're doing. Make it so that no one would obviously suspect it. That's true fasting. That's one way to mess it up, though. Doing it for others 
and to view it as some big sacrifice that you are making from God. So let me just say this then on top of that. Anytime you give up something for God, whether it be time, money, or anything sacrificial, you agree to do something good or grand for God or difficult, shut up about it. If I, I, I don't mean to be irreverent, but if I had a nickel for every person who complained about the burdens of the ministry, I could retire. So just, just stop it. Either what you're doing is worth it or it's not. If it's worth it, great, keep doing it. If it's not, get out. Stop it. God, don't give, don't serve, don't do what you've been doing because God doesn't want a bunch of busy, miserable Marthas running around. From that parable of the two, not parable, the story, the illustration he gave of the two sisters. He wanted Mary, who did less, but meant everything that she did meaningfully in her service to God. God wants a cheerful giver, not a begrudging one. You see the patterns all over Scripture. So see the pattern. If it's, if it's not worth it to you, don't do it. And if it is worth it to you, stop talking about the burdens. It's worth it to you. Because, you know, I, I'm going to be clear. I am here for one reason this morning. I want to be here. I'm here because it is my joy to be here serving with you guys. And, be, and I just can't believe what God has given me the privilege of doing with you guys this season. It's, and yes, there's, it's inconvenient at times. There's some things that are more drudging and more difficult. But I put up with that and I don't complain about it because it allows me to do what I get to do. I love it. So I'm getting off on a tangent again there, but you see my point. You know, don't be like the Pharisee who goes around saying, Wow, look at all of these burdens God has me doing. But whatever you do, do from the heart. Do because you want to do it. Give because you want to give. Serve because you want to serve. Give everything that we give as an offering of worship to God. And getting back to my main point, the second way we fast incorrectly, and I actually think this way is more dangerous and is becoming more prevalent, especially in evangelical circles, is that people are fasting to get something from God. And it sounds like this. Wow, I have such a big decision to make this week or such a difficult thing coming up. I'm going to stop eating so that God really hears my prayers. I've been hearing a lot of talk like that. And when you think about it, what's wrong with that? When it's phrased that clearly, I think it comes to the surface. Because we are really reducing our relationship to God to a hunger strike when we talk like that. And we sound like a, t a spoiled teenager trying to guilt his parents into getting a car. That's how it comes across. Why do people feel the need to do that? As if God doesn't already love you and is close to you and wants to give good gifts to his children. 
That's God's true heart. God is not so far off that you have to do things to get his attention. You already have it as his child. It's the same kind of religion that Elijah mocked mercilessly in 1 Kings 18. I encourage you guys to check that out later. But it emphasizes how pagan it is when we try to do things to get God to pay attention to us. It's not biblical. Rather, the things that we give up, whether it be food or other means in fasting, it's not so that we can get God to pay attention to us gloomy and disfigured people. It's because, you know, I'm going to lay this aside so I can spend time with my Father in heaven. Spending time with him is more important than this next meal or for the next meal for the next couple of days. Not to get his attention, but because I want to give him mine. That's the difference. It's literally the cart before the horse when it's done that last incorrect way. Now, Martin Luther once said, I have so much to do today, so much to accomplish, that I must spend at least three hours in prayer to be able to get it all done. That's somebody with the right priorities. So the obvious question emerges as we work towards our conclusion this morning, saints. What can you give up, either as a one-time thing or as an ongoing thing, to spend more time with God? Or what are you willing to forego? Are you willing to skip a meal to pray and carve out that extra time? Are you willing to skip breakfast when you get up too late to still keep your morning devotions? Are you willing to, uh, to cancel an event to stay at home and pray with a loved one? And how much time do we really need on our phones anyway? And yes, is there a time when meals are less important than something else that's a priority to our lives. Forgiving and fasting. These are the things that we do, not because we are mandated to do it, but as citizens of the kingdom of God, these are the things we desire to do. Not an attempt to earn God's favor. We already have it as his children but because we desire to enjoy it and desire to spend time with him. Amen, church? Amen. Amen.